Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, let's hear from the mouth of God from Psalm 8. And if you're wondering why we're skipping Psalm 7, it's not because I'm scared of Psalm 7, it's just that that is a very similar theme to Psalm 6 and 5. We will get back to Psalm 7 in due time. But let's go to Psalm 8 this evening. Very famous psalm in some ways. Hear then the word of the Lord from Psalm 8, a Davidic psalm for the choir director on the Gittith. Yahweh our Lord, how, how, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. Father, your name is magnificent indeed, and we have come to magnify your name. We have come to worship you as the God who is great, the creator of the earth and the skies and the sea and the sun and the moon and the stars and the planets and the galaxies, the whole universe, Father, can fit in the palm of your hand. So, Father, we humble ourselves before you. We want to tremble at your word this evening and be encouraged in our souls. So, Father, would you feed us like you reminded us this morning? No one who, well, everyone who feeds, or Jesus is the bread of life, and everyone who feeds on him will never go hungry. Everyone who comes to him will never go hungry, and those who believe in him will never thirst. So, Father, may we drink and may we feed on the glories and majesties and magnificence of King Jesus as we think about Psalm 8, and may we come to a better understanding even of ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Psalm 8 has a very clear theme, and it's in verse 1 and verse 8, or verse 9. Actually, a clear point in verse 1 and verse 9. It actually repeats almost the exact same words in verses 1 and 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic or how magnificent is your name in all the earth. It's in verse 1 and verse 9. And so David, in this psalm, is writing from a position of wonder. I didn't meditate on this this morning, though I should have, but due to time, I didn't. Remember at the end of our passage this morning, when Jesus healed the man from his deafness and his muteness, it said that they were exceedingly astonished. They were amazed, and they were in this state of wonder, this state of awe. And as Christians, we can sometimes become so familiar with God that we don't stand in awe of how great he really is. We know he's big. We know he can do everything. We know he knows everything. But if we've been Christians for even two or three years, 
It can get familiar to you. He can get familiar to you. Overly familiar where your jaw doesn't drop anymore at times. At just the wonder and the magnificence of how great he actually is. And so David here and the Bible here reminds us of how great God is. And so what we see in this psalm are three things about God, three reasons to praise God for his magnificence. Three things about God that show us how magnificent he is. In verse 1, we have the first one. In verse 2, we have the second one. And then in verses 3 through 8, we have the third one. So the first reason or the first glimpse of God's magnificence from David's perspective is in verse 1. It says, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And then it says in the second part of verse 1, you have covered the heavens, that's the skies, with your majesty. God has covered the skies with his majesty. Now, God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. On day one, he said, let there be light. And there was light, and he separated the light from the darkness. On day four, God fills up. Days one, two, and three, God, God shows the empty creation. Days four, five, and six correspond with filling the previous Day. So day one and day four correspond. Day one is light and darkness. Day four is filling the emptiness of what the light and darkness represent. And so on day four, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. The sun, the moon, and the stars were on the fourth day of creation. And how did God create it? By speaking words, right? By simply speaking words. Powerful words that when God speaks... Things happen. He says, be open to deaf ears. Deaf ears obey. Be open to a mute mouth. The mute mouth obeys. Let there be stars. Let there be sun. Let there be moon. And all of a sudden, out of nothing, a sun appears. A a moon appears. Stars appear. And so we see here that the heavens declare the glory of God. And that's what Psalm 19 says. If you're in Psalm 8, you can keep your finger there and just turn to Psalm 19. David, again, speaks of the majesty of creation in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Look at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. It says this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day, the heavens, the skies, are pouring out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. The skies are constantly talking to us, saying, God is majestic. God is glorious. God is powerful. God is big. Verse 3, there is no speech, so it's not audible words. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. But their message has gone out to all the earth, verse 4. And their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched the tent for the sun. It is like a groom coming from the bridal chamber. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. Verse 6, it rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end, and nothing is hidden from its heat. David is simply amazed at the creation of God. And that's how we know that God exists. If someone asks you, maybe my children might remember this, if you ask them, um, how do we know there is a God? The Baptist Baptist catechism or the Baptist order of teaching that was taught uh, to Baptists in the 1700s, kids memorized, when you say, how do you know there is a God? They would say, The light of nature and man and the works of God plainly declare that there is a God. The works of God being the heavens. It plainly declares that there is a God. But his word and spirit only effectively reveal him to us for our salvation. 
And that's really Psalm 19. But the first part is, how do you know there's a God? The works of creation. Just look up and see. That's what Romans 1.18 says as well. For non-believers who are atheists and say there is no God, it's not that they don't believe there's a God. It's that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They say they don't believe in God, but they do. They do. That's what Romans 1 says. Romans 1 says don't believe atheists. So atheists say they don't believe in God, but God doesn't believe in atheists. They don't exist. They do believe in God. They're just suppressing the truth. And so David here is not an unbeliever. He's not an atheist. He's, he's worshiping God as he looks up at the sky. Let me read to you a, a quote. This is from John Piper's book called Think, where he quotes Charles Meisner, a scientific specialist in general relative theory. And he, um, Charles Meisner, he writes about Albert Einstein, who's one of the greatest minds, right, of the 1900s. And this is what he says about um, Albert Einstein. I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business. It's very magnificent, or it's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion, although he strikes me as, a basically, very, as basically a very religious man. He must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that religions he'd run across did not have proper respect for the author of the universe. That's an amazing quote. Now, Albert Einstein was not a Christian as far as I know, but he saw, as he studied the universe, just the majesty of how magnificent it was. And if he walked into a church or religious meetings and they were talking about this great God who supposedly created the universe, he was far too small and far too puny for all the magnificence he had seen. And so John Piper continues, Scientists know that light travels at 5.87 trillion miles a year. They also know that the galaxy that our solar system is a part of is 100,000 light years in diameter. So that's 587,000 trillion miles. And that galaxy, our galaxy, is about one of about a million such galaxies in the optical range of our most powerful telescopes. So we are one of a million galaxies with 587,000 trillion miles of diameter in our galaxy alone. And in our galaxy, there are about 100 billion stars. 100 billion stars. The sun is one of them. A modest star burning about 6,000 degrees centigrade on the surface and traveling in an orbit at 155 miles per second, which means it will take about 200 million years to complete a revolution around our galaxy, which is one of a million galaxies. Scientists know these things, Piper continues. Einstein was awed by them. He felt something like this. If there's a personal God, as the Christians say, who spoke this universe into being, then there's a certain respect and reverence and wonder and dread that would have to come through when we talk about him. And certainly, we would be talking about him all the time since he is the most important reality. You can feel the force of this when you hear what God said in Isaiah 40, 25, and 26. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. Lift your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these stars? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each of them by name, each star by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God created the whole universe. 
and named each star. He is simply amazing and magnificent. And David doesn't even know all those stats that we just said about the, the, the diameter of our galaxy. David knew none of that. He just looked up in the, star, in the sky and was amazed at the glory and majesty of God. So that's the first reason why we say God is magnificent in all the earth. And, um, and the second reason we say God is magnificent in the earth is, look at verse 2 of Psalm 8. It says, because of your adversaries, so God has enemies, apparently, because of God's adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. This is strange. What is he saying here? Why is he praising God here? Because God has enemies, what did God do? He established a stronghold through what? Through the mouths of who? Children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. What is this talking about? What is David talking about here? God has enemies, and so God opens the mouths of babies to silence the enemy? Who is the enemy? Well, we sort of know who the enemy is. Who's, well, who's God's enemy? Person, the per, yeah, Satan, right? Satan is, is God's enemy. And so we get a picture of this in Genesis 3. Look at Genesis 3. Keeping your finger in Psalm 8, we'll go back there again. <laughs> but in Genesis chapter 3, we have the... The, the lineage here of the enemies of God or God's people. Genesis 3.15. This is after Adam and Eve ate the fruit and the serpent was cursed. In chapter 3, verse 15, it says, God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman or enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So here, God is saying to Satan, I'm going to put hostility between you you and the woman. So here's two sides. Here's two teams. The serpent and the woman. And the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman are going to be at enmity, in hostility against each other. And Satan will strike one of the seeds. Satan will strike the seed's heel. But that seed will strike Satan's head and crush him. Okay, so here's God's enemy, Satan. And then the seed of Satan, those who will follow his, his way, will, will become, at the end of the day, the enemy. So here the enemy lines are drawn. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. And so we get back to Psalm 8. Because of God's adversaries, because of the seed of the serpent, God has raised up from the mouths of babies praise. He's established a stronghold from nursing infants. Well, when I say praise, I, I went ahead of myself. If you're in Psalm 8, now turn to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 is, a, is the Sunday, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Jesus is crucified that following Friday. So in, in, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus rides in on a donkey. There's a crowd cheering, Hosanna, son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, Hosanna, which means save us. In the highest heaven. So they're cheering for Jesus. He comes into the temple. He cleanses out the temple for the second time in his ministry. The beginning of his ministry he did it. He cleanses them out, the temple out again at the end of his ministry. And then look at verse 14 of Matthew 21. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple complex and he healed them. When the chief priests and the scribes, seed of the serpent here, saw the wonders that he did and the children shouting in the temple complex, Hosanna to the son of David. They're calling Jesus son of David. They're saying he's the king because David is the king. And they're saying, save us. They're praising Jesus. 
So when they heard him say, in the, the, saying Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were angry at those words. Verse 16, and they said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? What does Jesus say? Yes, Jesus told them. Have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8. You have prepared praise from the mouths of children and nursing infants. Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. So here, this Sunday, Palm Sunday, as Jesus is confronted by his enemies, by the chief priests and the scribes, the seed of the serpent, saying, stop these people from praising you and calling you the son of David. Jesus says, haven't you read Psalm 8? Psalm 8 says that out of the mouths of infants, praise will come. Now in Psalm 8, who are they praising? They're praising God. In Matthew 21, who are they praising? Jesus. In other words, Jesus is God, right? Which is even more offensive to those enemies, right? Not only is he the son of David, he's basically saying, yes, and they're here to praise me. I'm fulfilling Psalm 8 right now. And they would have been even more indignant. The audacity of this man to not only claim to be the son of David and to be able to save these people, but that he deserves the praise of people like God. But yeah. And so here you see, why, why is David praising God? Because God, even though the enemies of God are here, the seed of the serpent, God will raise up people to praise him. In other words, the seed of the woman, the people of God will praise God. In other words, the, the serpent won't win. The seed of the serpent will not win. The people of God will win in the end. And why will we win? Because we're praising the son of David, who's going to save us from our sins by his death and resurrection on the cross. And so David here, not knowing it while he's writing Psalm 8, is actually writing about his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, who's going to actually bring this about through his triumphant entry, his death, and his resurrection. Okay, and so here you have God establishing a stronghold against the enemy. Now, here's the main body of the psalm. Go back to Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8. Here's the third reason. So we praise God as magnificent because of the heavens. We praise God as magnificent because he has established a stronghold against the enemy. And thirdly, we praise God as magnificent because he made man. And when I say man, I'm saying that generically, men and women, humanity. He made man... In his image. In his image. Look at verses 4 through 8. Or verses 3 through 8. So here's David. Here's the main point. He's, he's blown away by the heavens. And he says, When I observe the heavens, the skies, and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, they're so huge. When I think of this vast universe, then I ask this question in verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him? the son of man that you look after. Why do you think of little me? We're like little ants, little specks of dust in the universe. And God knows about what you did today. He knows about what you ate for breakfast. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow. And he cares about what you do. David is just floored. With, this, with God being this huge and this magnificent and this big, why do you care about us? What is man that you are mindful of us? And the son of man that you, that you care, you know, that, that you look after us. And then he remembers the answer. He answers his own question. Why does God care about man? Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. You made man a little less than God. And you crowned him with glory and honor. 
You made him Lord over the works of your hands and you put everything under his feet. In other words, you made man and woman in your own image. That's what verses 5 and 6 are saying. So every human has value. Every human has worth. Every human is infinitely valuable. Why? Because they're inherently infinitely valuable? No. Because by design, they are made in the image of God. They are made a little less than God, crowned with glory and honor. Whose glory and honor? God's. God has made them to reflect him, which is why we must never speak against another human flippantly. That's what James says. When you speak against the image of God, a person, guess who you're speaking against? God. That's what James says in James chapter 2, 3, and 4 about slander and those types of things. Who made you judge? These people are made in God's image, even if they're not Christians. We should always respect fellow humans, or to use Jesus' words, we should always love our neighbors as ourselves. Why? They are made a little less than God. Every human, every human is made in God's image. And therefore, they're worth, they have dignity and worth and value and are to be respected. That doesn't mean every human's right all the time and you can't disagree with humans. doesn't mean you can't correct fellow humans, but you must do it respectfully because they are made in the image of God, let alone Christians who are new creations in Christ, right? I feel a little convicted myself as I think about that reality. You have made him a little less than God, and you've crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals and the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the sea. Now, David here has what verse in mind? What passage does he have in mind here? Genesis chapter 1. So again, turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Let's think about this design of being made in God's image about being made a little less than God. Genesis chapter 1. Some people might say, well, PJ, if the universe is that vast and that great and our, our galaxy is 587,000 trillion miles in diameter and we're one of a million galaxies as far as our telescopes can see and our telescopes can't see even the end of the universe... Aren't there, is there life on any other planet? Is there life outside of Earth? Why does God care about what's going on on planet Earth if the, if the universe is so vast? Here's why. Because Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, he created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. Again here, so you see in verses 26 and 27, humans are made in God's image. That's why they have value. That's why, we, you know, I was talking to a church, uh, you know, one of our attenders today about it, why, you know, the death penalty. Genesis 9 picks up on this very theme about the death penalty being in Genesis 9 that the reason why there's a death penalty is because if you kill a man made in God's image, then the price of that is the, the murderer's blood, according to Genesis chapter 9. You can look at that later. Another reason, that's another thing, another reason why we take abortion so seriously. I don't know if you've seen the Planned Parenthood videos. I won't dwell on that now. But why abortion is such a serious matter is because those infants in the womb are made in God's image. 
They're made in God's image. And so they are not to be treated like... See, I've been watching those videos lately, those Planned Parenthood videos. They're not specimens. They're not just fetal cadavers or fetuses. They are those things, but they're more than that. They're babies. They're humans. Yeah, and they're alive, and they're, they're alive. And so here, but the point here is that men and women, boys and girls, infants and the aged are made in God's image, male and female, and even gender is part of made, being made in God's image. I don't want to get into that right now, but there's gender confusion in our world today about what is a man and what is a woman. That's by God's design. If you're a man or you're a woman, that's God's design, and that's beautiful in God's sight. And we're not to, we're not to be discontented with our gender or with the gender you know, of our children, you know, even that. Like, it's all by God, and it's all reflecting God's image. That's one of the reasons we tell our children, you should, say, you should tell this to every child, Every child in our church, you know, one of the things we ask our kids is, why do we love you? Or why are you so beautiful? And their answer is, because I'm made in God's image. And that's the right answer. You know, this world will say you're valuable for different things. You're valuable because of how much money you make, or how, how good your grades are, or what your assets are, or what your giftedness is, or how many friends you have, or how fruitful your family is. That's where your value comes from. No, you're made in God's image. And for that alone... You are beautiful and wonderful and wonderfully made. Okay, and so not only that, but what, what is man supposed to do according to Genesis one twenty eight? God blessed him and said, be fruitful, multiply, and do what? Fill the earth and subdue it. They were supposed to spread. And so Greg Beal, a biblical theologian, who's very gifted and very insightful on Genesis 1 and 2, he says that the garden is sort of like the temple. The garden is where God lives. It's like the Holy of Holies, the Garden of Eden. And as man and woman, as Adam and Eve were supposed to take care of the garden, they were to expand the garden by being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth. So they're putting image bearers all over the earth. When you go to a pagan temple, what do you see there? Images. So what is the earth? God wants to fill the earth with his what? Images. Humans. Being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth. So if Adam and Eve didn't sin and fulfill their job, the whole earth would be covered with image bearers who are not sinful, but reflecting God with joy and gladness. Being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, and subduing it. That was the original plan of God. And so that's why man has worth, and that's what God wanted to do, was fill the earth with his image bearers. But we sinned instead, and we were kicked out of the garden. We were kicked out of the temple, so to speak. But what happens in Matthew 28, 19, and 20? What does Jesus tell us? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. So you're now to go across the whole earth and make disciples. And when you make disciples of people, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, 2, Timothy, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. And so you are restoring the image of God. Because right now, if you're not a Christian, you're still made in the image of God, but you have a distorted image of God. As you convert to Christ and you're born again, the image of God is restored. And the more you grow in holiness, the more you're restoring the image of God in your life. And the more you sin, the more you, you belittle and distort the image of God in your life. And so as we spread the gospel, what are we doing? We're being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it. And restore as we plant churches and evangelize and do missions, we are restoring sinners to Christ so they reflect his image all over the world. And when Christ comes again... In Revelation 22.5, the whole earth will be the, the temple. The whole earth will be the Holy of Holies. And all of us will reflect God's glory perfectly with no sin. That's why Revelation 22.5 says, we will reign with him forever and ever. 
We will subdue the earth. We will rule because to be made in God's image is to be a king of the earth. We were made to rule over the sheep and the oxen, as it says in Psalm 8, verses 7 and 8. We were made to rule, to reflect God's rulership and and kind and loving authority over the world. And so David here stands in awe that even though we are so little on the earth, we're made in God's image, and we should stand in awe because God restored that image in us to make disciples, and that's what we're doing here in Bellflower. Let's close with Hebrews chapter 2. So you don't, we're not going to go back to Psalm, but turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 5 picks up and quotes this psalm. So if you want the New Testament interpretation of Hebrews 2, or Psalm 8, go to Hebrews 2 verse 5. Hebrews 2 verse 5 says this. Speaking of Jesus, for Jesus has not subjected, or for, I'm sorry, for, speaking of God in the beginning, for God has not subjected to angels the world to come that we are talking about. But one has somewhere testified, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels. That's the Greek translation. We read from the Hebrew translation. You made him lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. You're supposed to rule over these things. And then it says in verse 8, For in subjecting everything to him, to man, he left nothing that is not subject to him. So everything is supposed to be under humanity. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. Isn't that true? We don't see everything subjected to humanity. Has, you know, there's lions... You know, everyone's making a big deal about Cecil, the lion who was killed. Uh, but there, in, there have been recent, I heard on news recently, uh, on Albert Moeller, his podcast, he talks about the African who wrote thanking the man for killing the lion. Because when you grow up in a village and you got to go get water at the river, if there's a lion alert out there, that's not fun. You know, it's, it's not a zoo. When you're living there in the village, you want those lions, you know, you want to kill those lions. When, when your mom or your sisters are going out down to the stream to get water to go wash clothes, right? Having a lion out there is not, it's not cute. In other words, the lions are not fully subjected to humanity yet at this point. Nor are tornadoes. Nor are earthquakes. Nature is not subjected to humanity the way it's supposed to be. It has rebelled against us the way we have rebelled against God. So he says, not yet, but look at verse 9. But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that when Jesus became, when the Son of God became man, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of his suffering and death. For in bringing many sons to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, all things exist for him and through him, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. So, Psalm 8 is talking about humanity in general, but Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is taking it and he's applying it to Jesus. God made Jesus, the Son of God, the Father made the Son of God lower than the angels for a season when he was on earth. Why? To die for our sins. Why? Because not everything was subjected under us as it was supposed to be because of the curse of this world. So God sends Jesus to become lower than the angels so that he can die on the cross for our sins. And when Jesus dies for our sins and rises from the dead and redeems his people, they now are restored to the image of God so that when Christ comes again, everything will be subjected under our 
feet. And we will display the image of God perfectly when Christ returns. And that's the interpretation of Psalm 8, according to Hebrews. It's pointing to Jesus, the one who redeems us sinners and, and reminds us that we will rule. And yes, are we to rule over the earth now? Yes. Are we to conquer the sin in our life now? Yes. And we're to be growing in that, knowing that this is still a fallen and cursed world. And when Christ returns or when we die, sin will be no longer present in us. And we will reign with Jesus when he comes back again forever and ever and ever. And so what does Psalm 8 conclude with? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You made the heavens. You made you established infants against the enemies. And you have made man in your image. And you made Jesus even a man to die for us and rise for us. And so we here at First Southern Baptist Church of Belfar tonight, we worship and praise God for Jesus who became a man and died for us so that we will reign with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Psalm 8. What a blessing. What a joy that you are our God, the magnificent God who just said, let the light shine. Let there be sun and moon and stars. And there was. Father, you are majestic and glorious and powerful, and wise, and good, and kind, and merciful. And we praise you for your creation power. We praise you for defeating your enemies. We praise you for making us humans in your image. We praise you for Jesus who came to die for us and rise for us to restore that image to us. And we praise you for the Great Commission where you have now sent us as a church and as individual Christians to our neighbors, our family, and our friends to make Christ known, to make the gospel known so that others might repent from their sins, believe in Jesus, have the image of God restored in them now in part and in whole when Jesus returns. Father, there is no more significant life than living for you. So we thank you for making us in your image. And we pray now, Father, as we go to prayer for our church family and for each other, that you would bless our time of prayer with um, intimacy, with communion with you and with joy. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who will not be at our prayer time, but who might be um, leaving now as we transition, that you would give them a good week of glorifying you and reflecting your image in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.